0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips and this is Rear Vision.
2: From this day and forever, declare Barbados a parliamentary republic.
1: At the stroke of midnight, 55 years to the day Barbados became independent from the UK, a new republic was born. A 21-gun salute marked the official change of power, with Britain's Queen Elizabeth no longer serving as the head of state. Barbados, an island in the Caribbean with a population the size of Canberra, became a republic in November last year, replacing the Queen as head of state with their governor-general. The Australian Republican movement has just launched a new push for a republic here. But will it succeed, given the missed opportunity 20 years ago? How did Barbados manage this transition and what does it mean to be a republic within the Commonwealth of Nations, a grouping of countries which were almost all once part of the mighty British Empire?
3: The Commonwealth doesn't actually have a beginning and uh, who knows whether it'll have an end. Yes, hello, I'm Saul Dubow. I am born and educated in South Africa and currently the Smuts Professor of Commonwealth History at Cambridge University. It's generally assumed to go back to the late 19th century when the British Empire, as it then was, began to allow members of the Dominions, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, to take a greater role in discussions. But it was really formalized first after the First World War, particularly after the South African statesman Jan Smuts suggested the Commonwealth in 1917 in Britain as a way of sharing sovereignty. But the really big shift in the Commonwealth happened in 1949 when it moved from being an old sort of white men's club of Dominion members to open up to become a multicultural institution. And that was the point at which the issue of Republicanism became absolutely a key problem because Ireland decided not to join the Commonwealth because it would not abide having the monarch as its head of state. And shortly after, India, tussling with this problem, wanting to be a republic, nonetheless decided as a new independent state, just as Pakistan had done, to remain within the Commonwealth as a republic. That set an important precedent. It wasn't the only precedent which really allowed the Commonwealth to say it was okay for countries to remain part of this now fifty four state collective, even if you are a republic. But I think that for many people, particularly the sort of older school, the dominions and so forth, the monarch was an absolutely central part of the idea of Commonwealth, not just in terms of the symbol of the monarch, but also, for quite important constitutional reasons. The original assumption was that to be a member of the Commonwealth, you would acknowledge the British sovereign as the head of state. After 1949, that changed with some countries deciding not to join or to join as republic. So it was done on a case-by-case basis. But for countries that decided to become republics, of course, they simply created their own heads of state. And there are, in fact, five countries in the Commonwealth who have their own monarchs.
0: It becomes a kind of useful device for this term we now use, decolonizing, effectively giving parts of the British Empire their independence without using that term independence. So being able to pretend that the empire still exists as a, as a coherent whole. Hi, I'm Philip Murphy. I'm a professor of British and Commonwealth history at the Institute of Historical Research in London. And it's a particularly useful rhetorical device for the British after the Second World War, when the rest of the empire effectively dissolves. It's a way of almost saying to the rest of the world, these areas are becoming self-governing, but within the framework of the Commonwealth. So that imperial family, as it would have been referred to certainly before the Second World War, continues in a slightly different form.
1: To remain in the Commonwealth, all these new republics had to do was recognize the British monarch as its head, a symbolic role. Many newly independent African republics chose to remain in the Commonwealth.
0: It happens quite rapidly in in Africa in in the early 1960s. So there's a series of African states, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, that that move quite rapidly from independence as as monarchies to republics. So so now in Africa, for example, there are no Commonwealth states that are monarchies. And I suppose that there was then an expectation certainly in Whitehall, that the rest of the Commonwealth would move in that direction quite quickly, including states like Canada and Australia. And perhaps the surprising thing is that 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 hasn't happened at quite the rate it was expected 60 years ago.
1: It took until the 1990s for a head of Republican steam to build up in Australia, although opposition to the authority of the British Crown goes back to colonial times.
4: Well, certainly ideas about the Republic go back quite a long way. Many of the earlier migrants to Australia were from an Irish background and had Republican views. I'm Anne Toomey. I'm a professor of constitutional law at the University of Sydney. Even in the 1890s, there was a fair bit of a Republican movement. And even some of our very early politicians, if you look at Sir Henry Parks, quite early on, he was Republican minded. He said that he changed his mind, but nonetheless, he was the one who proposed the title of Australia of being Commonwealth of Australia. And that term Commonwealth evoked the British Republic with Cromwell, the Commonwealth from back then. And Queen Victoria was quite concerned about the name, suggesting that it really had Republican overtones, whereas her political advisor said, oh, no, ma'am, nothing of the sort, But one suspects that really Henry Parks was having a little bit of a dig with that name. So it's quite a bit of it around the 1800s. It disappeared for a while, arose again with the 1975 dismissal of the Whitlam government that raised a lot of Republican concerns or discussion. And then it really came to the fore in the early 1990s when Paul Keating raised it as a substantial issue He set up a Republican advisory committee to prepare the ground for it.
1: The controversial sacking of the Whitlam Labor government by the Governor-General John Kerr in 1975 demonstrated the power of the Queen's representative in Australia's political system. It's hardly surprising that the idea of an Australian republic became the subject of public debate under a subsequent Labor leader.
2: Paul Keating last night took the first official step towards a federal republic of Australia. The Queen's role in Australian politics
0: would end and so would the role of the Governor-General, her representative in Canberra. In only his second major public speech since the election, Paul Keating turned the push for a republic into the central vehicle for the wider vision. We can do all these things, but we'll do them better if we're united as a people, confident of our identity and what we stand for. That's why we need to be in every sense, including the symbolic ones, our own masters.
4: Well, originally what first sparked it was Paul Keating and his proposal for a republic. Now, this led to dissent within political parties. There were some in Labor who didn't want a republic and there were some in the coalition that did want a republic. So there were splits in both parties about it. There was a time when Alexander Downer, was leader of the coalition, and he was finding it very difficult to manage those splits within his party about a republic. So one of his advisors, who happened to be Greg Hunt, who's now the health minister, came to see me in Parliament House and said, well, what can we draw on historically that might help us to deal with this issue of a republic? And I said, well, historically, when the constitution was written, we had a constitutional convention, And so Downer then announced support for a constitutional convention if the coalition came into government to decide on the issue of a republic so that his own party wouldn't be split on it. He could say, well, we'll just leave it for that convention to deal with. And that worked quite well, except for the fact that Downer lost the leadership to John Howard, and he used the same mechanism to avoid dissent within his own coalition ranks so that he agreed to have this constitutional convention. So the convention was held. It was partially elected and partially appointed. And the election, of course, gained a lot of publicity, a lot of interest in the Republic. And so that was held over two weeks in Old Parliament House and um, different models of a Republic were debated. And the final model that achieved the most support was the model of having a head of state who was elected by two thirds majority in the parliament rather than a direct election from the people. And that was very controversial, but John Howard agreed that the model would be put to a referendum, which it was in 1999. The idea was to have the Republic in place by the Centenary of Federation in 2001. And as you know, the Republic referendum failed.
1: The Republican question was to sink 55 to 45% nationally, with Victoria the only state to vote yes, and only just, and the ACT recording the highest yes vote. The Northern Territory, at this stage, a no. The morning after, Malcolm Turnbull was assessing his 10-year investment in the ARM and says it's time for others to step in.
0: If the Republican movement can't survive without Malcolm Turnbull doing what I've done for the last 10 years, then it doesn't deserve to survive.
1: The referendum failed partially because of the model chosen by the Convention to be put to people in the referendum. The head of state in an Australian republic would be chosen by politicians, not by popular election. Australia can only change its constitution through a referendum, and a referendum has to be framed in a very particular way.
4: That's right. And and that's part of the problem with our constitution is that the way we amend the constitution is you don't get to put up something with a whole lot of choices. It's either the status quo or this particular change, which is set out in detail. So under our constitution, you can't say, well, here are seven models, choose the one you like best. You could do that as a plebiscite, but it wouldn't actually have the effect of changing the constitution. In the end, when you have the referendum to change the constitution, it's a choice between what currently exists and the one proposed change that you're voting on. The people didn't get to choose directly between a directly elected president, for example, and this this model of the parliament choosing it. And the Republicans who were in favour of a directly elected president effectively joined with the monarchists to defeat the model. And those Republicans who wanted a directly chosen president seemed to think that, well, if they defeated this model, then next year they'd have a referendum on their model. Well, of course, that never really happened. And here we are decades later without any further progress on a republic. So it was effectively Republicans that killed the republic back in 1999 by joining with the monarchists in that way. There's a contradiction in this because the Australian people overwhelmingly say if there is going to be an Australian president, for example, then we, the people, want a role in choosing that president. Now, the problem, of course, is that the Australian people also say, oh, and by the way, we don't want a politician as our head of state. We actually want people rather like the people that we currently have as governors and governors general to be our head of state. A political people who can bring Australians together. Now, that's where you get the contradiction because if you have an election throughout the entire country, then you necessarily do get a politician chosen. And if you ask yourself, well, how do you fund a national election? Well, you're going to have to have people supported by political parties, aren't you? Or you have someone who is just incredibly rich and spends an enormous amount of money on advertising. None of that is actually what the Australian people really want, but at the same time they say they want an election. Now, until we can resolve that dilemma, we're actually not going to get a republic because there is an inherent contradiction in what the Australian people actually want, and that's a problem no one's managed to resolve so far.
1: Last month, the Australian Republic movement released a new model. Its hybrid plan would see Australia's parliaments nominate candidates for head of state, who'd then be put to a popular vote. You're listening to Radio National's Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips. We're hearing about republicanism in the Commonwealth, where more than half of the member states no longer recognise the Queen as head of their political system. Barbados, a small Caribbean island, became the Commonwealth's newest republic in November.
3: We've been having this discussion for more than 20 years, and the truth is that it is important to us that we give confidence to our young people, to that little boy, that little girl, to believe that they can aspire to become the head of state of their own country. I think that that is an important symbol and an important confidence-boosting measure. And the truth is that the time has come for us to continue to make decisions fully on our own.
1: The idea of a republic had been a live issue in Barbados following independence in 1966. There were constitutional commissions set up to look into the matter in the 1970s and again in the 90s, and the possibility of a referendum, even though not legally required for constitutional change in Barbados, had been on the table. Mia Motley became Prime Minister in a landslide in 2018, with her party, the Barbados Labour Party, winning over 70% of the vote and all 30 seats in the House. A former Attorney-General, Motley had been a supporter of a Barbadian head of state.
2: So I would say a lot of what took place in Barbados last year, and would go back to 2020, really has to do with the political ambitions, the political vision of Mia Motley, who felt that it was time for Barbados to become a republic, that Barbados would have experienced something like 50 years of independence as a constitutional monarchy and that continuing to be a constitutional monarchy was in fact a mockery of everything that we understand to be independence. I'm Cynthia Barrow-Giles, a professor of constitutional governance and politics at the University of the West Indies, Cave Hill Campus, Barbados. And so it was not surprising, given that kind of philosophical and ideological orientation or perspective that clearly defined Mia Motley. it was not surprising that she would have taken that decision. I think we also need to Taking consideration or bear in mind that the decision to move to a republic also took place at a very specific juncture in the electoral history or development of the country. For the first time, you had a government which clearly was in total control of the parliament, having just emerged from a victory of 30 to no oppositions in the parliament. And therefore, if there was any of any time that they clearly would have been able to get the two thirds majority. That was certainly the time. And so Mia Motley announced to the public sometime early in 2021, that by November the 30th of 2021, Barbados would become a republic. And of course, that is exactly what took place.
1: There are 10 independent island countries within the Commonwealth Caribbean with a variety of constitutional arrangements. When the citizens of St Vincent and the Grenadines considered becoming a republic in 2009, they held a referendum.
2: In some of the other Caribbean countries, if you're following what has been taking place in the Caribbean, what we have seen, for instance, coming out of St. Vincent and the Grenadines around 2009, following a very intense and protracted two years or so, two, three years or so, of discussions around the constitution. And one of the recommendations was, of course, St. Vincent and the Grenadines do likewise, the same thing that Barbados has just done in 2021 the Constitution does require a referendum. And when it was placed to the people, that was rejected. And I'm not saying the idea of transiting to a republic per se was rejected in St. Vincent, because I think the water was muddied by the fact that they did not separate out the various recommendations and the various items that were put to the public in relation to that referendum. So it was a package of changes, constitutional changes that were made. Um, they were defeated. So I suspect that in St. Vincent, the opportunity to transit to a republic was really a casualty of the politics on the ground and the fact that there were people who did not like the idea that St. Vincent may have been moved in a direction where they would have had an executive-type president as distinct to a ceremonial-type president.
1: The constitutional change in Barbados was very straightforward. The current Governor-General, Sandra Mason, simply became the new president, a largely ceremonial role. Cynthia Barrow-Giles says the speed of the move surprised many Barbadians.
2: I would say that it almost appeared... That the announcement that Barbados would move towards a republic came virtually out of nowhere because there had not been any real discussion around constitutional changes in Barbados beyond talking about some local government changes, etc. The discussions on constitutional reform was not something that was sustained and focused and, and directed. So that's one thing we need to take in consideration. So when the announcement was made, There were some concerns that it was a very short period of time and that it would appear to people that the the most substantial change that would have taken place in terms of the Constitution was just removing the the British crown from the constitutional order, when in fact, for a number of people in the country, what Barbados requires is more profound, more substantial constitutional changes. The change to a republic, while important to Barbadians, I think on its own is not enough for Barbadians. So there was this hope that we would go into a republic with some other important changes being made to the constitution. There is no real concerted anti-Republican movement in Barbados, that does not really exist. What we have seen is that there are groups of people in Barbados who were opposed to the manner in which the transition occurred. The fact of the Republic is not something that is in fact opposed in Barbados. What people wanted was more public consultation, and they certainly felt that there was a need for them to have been consulted in the form of a referendum. On the one hand, their support for republicanism, and certainly the poll that we did in Barbados suggests that more than half the population, probably around 60% or so of the population, were very supportive of the move. There's another maybe 20% or more who either way didn't really have a view. I think civics is not a very strong thing in relation to Barbados and many of the other Caribbean countries. So you had a very small percentage of the population, somewhere anywhere between 10 and 20% who felt that the move should not have taken place in the absence of this wider consultation, and secondly, of course, a referendum.
0: I think an interesting point and a, a point of comparison between Barbados and Australia is that the way the Barbados Prime Minister, Mia Motley, did this transition was quite clever. So you look at what happened in Australia in 1999, and yeah, the Republican issue became mixed up with the question of what form of republic you want. So although it's widely assumed that there was probably a a majority within the country in 1999 for a republic, for the principle of a republic, voters simply didn't like the form of a republic that was on offer. What Mia Motley did in Barbados last year was effectively to take it in two stages. So her... Barbados Labour Party passed a very simple bill in September last year, effectively transferring the role and functions of the Governor General, Sandra Mason, to the President. And indeed, Sandra Mason herself becomes the President of Barbados, but a ceremonial President. And Mia Mottley then promises to hold a a proper debate on a new constitution and what that constitution will be. So she, she ring fences the basic transition to a republic from the broader debate about what a new constitution should consist of, because if the two had been conflated, the debate could have dragged on for years and years.
1: Today, 54 countries belong to the Commonwealth. What value does Commonwealth membership bring, given the only link between its members is Britain's imperial past?
0: It serves a variety of different purposes. To some extent, it's kind of a kite mark of international respectability now. I mean, The Commonwealth claims to uphold certain values around human rights, democracy and the rule of law. And belonging to the Commonwealth is a way of saying to the international community, we are a values based government. We're on the side of the angels. So so you can work with us, you can invest in us. You've got to remember also that the majority of Commonwealth states are small states. They have limited diplomatic capacity. And belonging to the Commonwealth provides certain diplomatic resources, it allows the presidents and prime ministers. A platform on the international stage and a major international organization with contacts with some of the bigger and more powerful donor countries in the world so it serves different purposes to different members but it serves enough of a purpose to each of the the commonwealth states to provide a disincentive to actually leaving the organization
1: here at buckingham palace in 1949 my father met the heads of government when they ratified the London Declaration, which created the Commonwealth as we know it today, then comprising just eight nations. Who then, or in 1952, when I became head of the Commonwealth, would have guessed that a gathering of its member states would one day number 53, or that it would comprise 2.4 billion people? The Queen speaking at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in London in 2018. The Commonwealth has been an important focus of her 70 years on the throne.
0: It absolutely is. And, and of course, she made that famous broadcast on her 21st birthday in 1947, which she pledged her life to what she called at the time the Imperial Family. And the title Head of the Commonwealth was given to her father in 1949. But it was really just that. It was a form of words to allow India to remain a Commonwealth member. The Queen in her reign has turned that into a proper job. She supported the Commonwealth in all sorts of ways, through tours to most Commonwealth countries, providing the Commonwealth Secretariat, the coordinating body of the Commonwealth, with its headquarters in Marlborough House, which is a royal palace. So it's tremendously important to her. It's been her international project, if you like. And it's what makes the British royal family different from other European royal families. It's that that global
3: reach. Yes, many other royal families, including families from countries that used to have empires, withdrew in many ways from public life and enjoyed private lives and didn't hope to interfere in politics. The British Royal Family is somewhat different because of course it does have a very important constitutional role within Britain, but they found, and uh, Queen Elizabeth was really brilliant at this, at establishing the Commonwealth as a field in which she would be welcomed and admired and which she would have considerable scope for extending and acting out as a global queen with her family.
1: The head of the Commonwealth is not a hereditary position, and indeed the members could decide to hold an election for the next head. However, following the wish expressed by the Queen at Chogham in 2018, her son Charles will succeed her as head of the Commonwealth. The people you heard on Rear Vision were Professor Anne Toomey from the University of Sydney. Professor Philip Murphy from the University of London, Professor Cynthia Barrow-Giles from the University of the West Indies and Professor Saul Dubot from the University of Cambridge. Tim Jenkins is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision and I'm Kerry Phillips. Thanks for listening.